Hello, welcome to the Farm Commons podcast, where we make farm law accessible and actionable for sustainable farmers and ranchers, as well as their networks of support. I'm Benita. And I'm Kate. In each episode, we explore real legal issues faced on farms every day and provide key knowledge and tangible solutions to help you grow a thriving agricultural business. From managing liability to navigating tough conversations with landlords and neighbors, we've got your back. Let's get started. Hey y'all, welcome back. I'm Benita, Communications Manager at Farm Commons, and I'm here with Kate. Kate, how are you doing today? Hey, Benita. I am doing great because the birds are out, the sun is shining, and I know that that means there are farmers and ranchers and herbalists who are out there foraging for some yummy springtime wild foods, which makes today's episode very timely. Yes, hallelujah. For today's conversation, we spoke to farmers about risk management tools for foraged products, specifically ways to protect income from foraged products. We've covered how there is no crop insurance for wild-crafted and forage products. So those mushrooms you might forage in the fall and sell for supplemental income, or the calendula you rely on for a hand sale recipe, there is likely no crop insurance offered to protect the revenue from those wild-foraged products. Right. Yeah. And the reasoning there is that those goods, those those wild forage goods, aren't actually cultivated. They're wild and therefore they will grow with or without us. So there is actually no investment of time or money to insure. And me, Eva, and our staff attorney, Chloe, actually have a really great conversation about the legal context behind uninsured crops back in episode 50. So you should check that out for more legal context. Uh, but make sure that you come back here to listen to how fellow farmers approach risk management for their wild crafted and foraged foods. Yes. And other goods. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Definitely come back. And just to set the stage for y'all today... Kate and I sat in a Zoom with six farmers, and we listened to episode 50 together. And then we talked about foraging practices and ways to manage the risk of crop loss from forage products and resulting lost revenue. And Kate, I really enjoyed our conversation. I know. It was so good. Tell me what stood out to you. Well, let's just start out with this quote from Farmer Marguerite, who was joining the call from Alabama. I mean... When I define an herbalist, I mean someone who really is uh, not only knows how to use the material, they're not really just looking at it as profit. They implement it as part of their program and they're very um, protective uh, of mm -hmm. not taking too much. I find them to be to be good managers of their product. While Marguerite does not forge herself, I think she really captured something here. That is the nature of foraging and wild crafting as a sacred practice that goes beyond profits and business decisions. Mm. Foraging represents a deep connection with personal values, with ancestors and traditions and respect for the land. It's hard work, Kate, and it's heart work. Ooh, so farmers that. who rely on income from forage products have to figure out how to incorporate their foraging practice into their business management. 
Medicinal herbs meet spreadsheets. Morels meet marketing. It clashes. But it stood out to me how challenging and necessary it is for farmers to navigate their deep love for foraging and those more impersonal realities of running their business. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think that's really beautifully said um, from both you and Marguerite. And I, I can really see how... Uh, combining foraging and wildcrafting with spreadsheets and sales taxes and other instruments of business can feel kind of disjointed. Um, And if you add that to the fact that forage products are unpredictable and labor-intensive, it's really no wonder that forage goods are often just an occasional side-stream revenue for farmers, ranchers, and herbalists, or even just a labor of love, no revenue expected. But We're here because, you know, any stream of income for farmers is important, especially if it is connected to a culturally and ecologically important practice like foraging. Yes, yes, so true. And there are many farmers who do rely on income from foraged and wild-crafted products. But as we mentioned, there is no crop insurance for wild-crafted or foraged products unless they are on the USDA's specialty crops list, which y'all will talk about in a bit. So how do foraging farmers protect the revenue from their foraging so they can continue doing it? Right. Yes, that is a key question uh, that we are going to dive into a bit. Um, And when Eva and I talked to staff attorney Chloe back in episode 50, she actually brought us through a few options that um, growers and producers can use to manage that risk of, of lost revenue from forage products. So... One option that we talked about, farmers can incorporate forage goods into a CSA, which I'm sure most people listening are familiar with that model. Um, but farmers there in a CSA uh, would share the risk of crop, fa- crop failure with their customers, and they would also share the reward of abundance with their customers. And another tool that can be really powerful here are sales agreements. So in sales agreements, farmers have a lot of power to write an agreement that supports their needs and shares their risk. A solid sales agreement can increase the likelihood that you will get paid even if a crop fails. And the process of creating and signing a sales agreement can really help farmers find customers who value the forage product and their relationship with the farmer. Hey, CSA and sales agreements. Two of those instruments of business that might feel out of place in the context of forage products. Exactly. But let's hear what farmer herbalist Sage thought about that idea. I actually love the, um, you know, like the CSA thing. I think it's like so easy to like think about the, you know, diversify. Of course, for those of us who are smaller operations, like, yes, absolutely, we we have to diversify. But the sales agreements one, that was one I was surprised about. Um, you know, so I thought it was like really great to be like, okay, here's like some, you know, things that maybe you, you know about, but also, and here's this other thing that maybe you didn't even think about. Kate, I love that Sage also mentioned diversifying, which, you know, that is also a time-honored risk management tool. And some extra context behind that quote is that Sage has used sales agreements in the past when running a restaurant and in the beginning of her herbalism business. So it was a moment of remembering what tools are available to her. And she wasn't the only one. Farmer Renee, who sells wildflowers and candles and soaps made with forage goods, followed up right after with this. And I'm going to agree with Sage on this is that 
there were things that, okay, you know, and then the other options that they put out there, it's like, oh, okay. So that's something I never thought of before. And so that made it intriguing too, because now I would like to look more into sales agreements as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I love the surprise and intrigue that we heard from Sage and Renee in those quotes, you know, which honestly just makes my heart sing. I Sales agreements may feel kind of unnecessary or cumbersome to some people, but they really are the memorialization of an agreement that farmers have complete control over. And so rather than an intimidating legal document, they can be thought of as an agreement with the community that wants to support your business. Mm. So... For example, a sales agreement could outline shared risks, like what happens if there are no wild ramps to be found? Does the customer still pay? And a sales agreement could also outline exclusivity. So if a buyer is a grocery store, then the sales agreement could clarify that the grocery store will come to the farmer for ramps before they turn to other vendors. And I'm going to drop a link in the show notes for anyone who's interested in exploring sales agreements a little bit more. Mm. Yes. I really love that Renee and Sage were reconsidering sales agreements for their forage products. And I want to bring up another risk management strategy that got a lot of feedback from the farmers we spoke with. In episode 50, Chloe mentions that a long-term strategy for managing risk of lost revenue from wildcrafted products is for farmers to organize and collect actuarial data about the wildcrafted products they sell. So they might be insured in the future by federally subsidized or private insurance. This would require farmers to cultivate those wild products in some way. For example, if a wild strain of echinacea or mint were dug up and cultivated into a managed production field. Yes. Yeah, that point got a lot of mixed feedback. And I just want to emphasize again that Currently, getting forage products covered by insurance is not a way to manage your risk of loss revenue, and it might never be in the future. But it is a possibility if farmers wanted to, you know, organize, move together, and head in that direction. Right. And that topic is controversial. On one hand, getting wild products insured could protect the income of people who care for those invaluable foods, herbs, and flowers. On the other hand, it could expose those products to increasing commodification. Mm -hmm. Farmer Mindy was on the call with us and foraging and native plants are a big part of her new farm business. I think this exchange between Mindy and Marguerite captures the different feelings on this subject. But I'm, yeah, planning to bring into cultivation some native plants from my area and kind of if I'm investing time and money in their cultivation, but they're not in the database of what's covered, um, yeah, I'd be interested in helping to get them there. Can I just make one more comment? Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm going backwards. And Minnie, you made a good point about the actuarial. You know, it made me realize like Chinese people have this thing called ginseng, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, here in the States, we collect that wild. The minute you take that and you try to grow that in a regular cultivated group, not the same thing anymore. So I don't know if a lot of those wildcrafted, like I said, I'll collect elderberries and I have found that if you get them from the wild and, and I cultivate them too, it's just not the same. Totally. 
Um, but it, I mean, there's also, you know, efforts to bring more things into cultivation to protect wild populations. And so, you know, it's, it's a complicated issue. Yeah. Yeah, that is a complicated issue. And if farmers agreed that getting a particular wild product covered by insurance was the best thing for them, they would need to work towards it together. In fact, that is kind of the beauty of the risk management solutions we've talked about so far. They are all farmer-led. Farmers set the parameters for their CSA, they craft the terms of the sales agreement, and um, they would need to do the kind of organizing that would lead to the actual their actuarial data needed for that specialty crops list. You're right, Kate. And I want to bring in one more legal tool that could support our farmer forages. Leases! Leases! <laughs> Many of the folks we spoke to brought up the fact that foraging is deeply related to land justice and land access. Folks who are foraging on leased lands can seek to have their foraging supported or protected in their lease. This could look like an agreement that a specific tract of woodland where ramps grow remain undisturbed during the lease period or an agreement to maintain a meadow to promote wildflower growth. Negotiating this with a landowner involves navigating an inherent power imbalance, but I do want to bring in leases as yet another legal tool that offers potential to farmers to claim some power and control over their business. Mm, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that additional tool in. And I think that the really important takeaway here is that there are legal tools that farmers can use to find greater legal resilience and that those legal tools don't need to be expensive or involve third parties like insurance agents. When farmers recognize a tool like a sales agreement as a blank slate for their own creative wisdom and community building, then really amazing things can happen uh, that give a lot of control and power to the farmer. So this feels especially important with foraging, partly because, as we said, there is no federally subsidized crop insurance coverage to lean on, but also because farmers and foragers know best what they need to protect their business and their relationship with the land and the things they forage. So true. Here at Farm Commons, y'all, we have a saying, paperwork is powerful. And creating agreements and writing them down is our number one tip for farm business owners across the board. And this applies to foraging and wildcrafting too. We're at the end here, but we hope that you foragers are leaving with some thoughts on how to set your business up for success and protect your foraging practice. As always, we love to hear from you. So drop your comments on Apple Podcasts or send feedback to our mailbox, info at farmcommons.org. We'd love to hear it. Bye. We're so glad you joined us for this episode of the Farm Commons podcast. If you are looking for more resources on your burning farm law questions, visit our website at farmcommons.org for a variety of workshops, guides, checklists, tutorials, and more. You can also email your questions and comments to info at farmcommons.org. Stay tuned for our next episode, and until then, keep growing.
This material is funded in partnership by USDA Risk Management Agency under award number RMA22CPT0012392.